most fathers that have sons have some desire to see their sons grow up to be men, to be strong men, to be courageous men, to be men that can handle the challenges of life. Story is told of one father that thought this is how he was going to do it. He would take his son out to their front porch and he'd say to his little guy, okay, crawl up on the railing, stand up on top of the railing. I'm going down under the grass. I want you to jump and I'll catch you. So his son would jump and he'd catch him. He'd say, Go back up on the railing. And his son would run back up on the railing and he'd jump. His father would catch him. Go back up on the railing. And the little boy would scamper back up onto the railing and he would jump and his father would catch him. And they made a habit of this time and time again. It became a game where the little boy would run up on the railing and he'd jump and his father would catch him. But one day his father said, jump. And just as the boy went airborne, the father stepped back and his son hit the ground hard. And he said to his son, there you go. Let this be a lesson. Don't ever trust Anybody. You know, trust is a difficult thing to exercise in a broken world. And it's difficult because sometimes, slash inevitably, the people that say they love us might betray us, might forget about us, might abandon us, might abuse us, might tear a strip off us. And so the older you get, the harder it can be to trust anyone. And that same distrust is often reflected in our relationship with God. God's like, jump, put your faith in me. And God catches us. And then he says, jump again. And we put our faith in him and he catches us. But maybe the third time or the 30th time or the 300th time, it feels like God has allowed us to hit the ground hard. And it causes us to wonder, does he really love us? Can he really be trusted? Surely in your faith walk, you've asked similar questions, maybe not out loud, but quietly in your prayer life, as you've read the word of God. It's easy to voice the distrust that we experience with others on God, because maybe God has permitted you to suffer, or maybe you've experienced the weighty disciplinary hand of God upon your life. And it's a little bit burdensome. In the Bible, the prophet Habakkuk addresses God in two separate complaints. In Habakkuk chapter 1 and Habakkuk chapter 2, he cries out to God on behalf of the people, God, why are you allowing us to suffer? You seem kind of passive. You seem kind of idle. You seem disconnected. God's like, hey, Habakkuk, trust me, I'm working. I'm working. And one of the things I want to do right now is I want to discipline you because my people have strayed from obedience. Habakkuk says, okay. 
But God, I have a second complaint for you. Why do you allow yourself to be exposed to evil if you're strong and all-powerful and mighty and holy? Why is it that you allow yourself to be exposed to such terrible sin, blasphemy, ridicule? God's like, Habakkuk, trust me, I've got it. I'm in the plan of using those that are evildoers for my purposes, but ultimately I'm going to judge them and I'm going to discipline them too. And Habakkuk responds in faith to God, not knowing when God is going to do this or how God is going to do this, but he, he chooses to trust in the character of God. So the lesson of Habakkuk really is trust, 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 trust God when it seems like he's let you fall, trust God when things are awesome and when things aren't, trust God when he's disciplining you that he's doing it for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory, trust in God. Habakkuk gets it. And so in chapter three, which I would like to study with you this morning, we have a psalm, a psalm written out by Habakkuk under the inspiration of God that declares his trust in God. He he just chose to remember certain things to be true about God and about God's plans. And this becomes this psalm of trust in the midst of the challenges of life. God had not fixed their problem yet. He hadn't brought healing. He hadn't removed his disciplinary hand. In fact, more discipline would come after this. But he chooses to trust in God. The title of my sermon today is So Praise Him. So Praise Him. And the good and the bad, and the ups, and in the lows. Trust Him and praise Him. Here's the big idea. When suffering raises questions, questions about God's competency, questions about God's care, questions about God's love. When suffering raises questions, God's word inspires trust, but not just trust. It also inspires worship. If he's not in charge, of course, we're all in trouble. But he is, and so there's great hope. Join me in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 1 reads a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shejanoth. That's a strange word. It's an ancient word, the Shejanoth. It speaks of a type of psalm that shows complete dependence upon God. There's different types of psalms. There are famously lament psalms where you're just pouring out your heart to God and asking why. There are thanksgiving psalms, kind of self-explanatory. There are praise psalms. This one is a unique form of psalm that shows complete dependence upon God. Again, chapters one and two of this book are complaints followed by instructions and warnings, and words of promise by God. Chapter 3 is our response. So this is like very practical. 
when you're in the middle of challenges, when you're starting to lose confidence in God, when you're not quite as trusting as you should be in order to flourish in your faith, remember the following things. In verse 2, we read, O Lord, I have heard. I have heard. Just kind of underline that in your mind. I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. I haven't seen it all come to pass yet. I'm not on the other side of the trial. I'm not on the other side of the suffering. I'm not on the other side of the discipline yet. But I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. There's a series of requests being made there for God to be gracious and merciful and to remember his people. But prior to that, Habakkuk says, I have heard. He heard from God. He heard God underscore, I'm in charge. I got this. I'm not idle. And so Habakkuk trusts God. He trusts God. Let me underscore this again. He trusts God not because God had fixed his problem. He trusts God because he had heard something to be true about God. Now this should bring to mind one of the most famous verses in our Bible. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing. When we hear God's word preached, we're not just here to accumulate truisms. But our faith is actually stoked. Like a fire is stoked when you throw more wood on it. Our faith is stoked when we hear God's word preached. God's word proclaimed. In Habakkuk's context, it was an oral word from God to the prophet. In our context, it's called the Bible, where God speaks transformational truth into our lives. Habakkuk was willing to accept God's wrath and discipline, and yet he also requests mercy. He requests mercy. And by the way, in order to request mercy, what's the prerequisite? you have to acknowledge in some way, shape, or form that you don't deserve mercy. Mercy is never owed. Mercy is always a gift. And it's much sweeter, by the way, than something you're owed because the giver of the mercy is extending love and grace and compassion to you, even though deep down you know you don't deserve it. So here we have the humility of the believer portrayed in like bold font. We have his trust portrayed in bold font. He's exercising humility and he's exercising trust because he had heard certain things to be true about God. Let's hear some things about God that will help to stoke the fires of our faith. There's several things here that we are called upon to remember. Uh, We didn't plan this, by the way. I wrote this sermon first. And then I discovered that they were going to sing this special music number afterward. But amazingly, one of the lines out of the song that was sung for us today is the first point in my sermon today. 
And it is this, remember who you're talking to. This really is the substance of chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. Remember who you're talking to. There's certain things you need to know about God that will humble you and enable you to flourish in your faith. Check it out, verses 3 to 7. A little complex because there's some geography mentioned here. Maybe I should just tell you about the geography real quick, first of all. There's a couple of places that are mentioned in, the, in this text that are in a region that was controlled by the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, kind of a brother nation, but an enemy nation to Israel. And when God speaks of this geographical location, he's essentially identifying the area within which Mount Sinai existed. And it was in Mount Sinai that God spoke to Moses and revealed his law and his covenant promises to the people of God. So when we're reading this, you kind of got to read it with your Jewish ears on and, and hear this as a recollection of what God had once done for the nation of Israel. So here we have it, verses 3 to 7. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise, Selah. That's a declaration of praise. It's often found in Psalms. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. So we know even when Moses encountered God, he put a veil on because the power and the majesty of God was so intense and so beautiful. This is what it's talking about. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heel. So that's meant to bring to mind the plagues and the pestilence that he poured out on the Egyptians when he rescued them from their captivity. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushon in affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. These are the enemies of God that trembled when God in power revealed himself in the desert, having rescued them through plagues and pestilence from the Egyptians and now set them on a sure course toward the promised land, which they had now occupied for centuries because what God said he did time and time again. So in this Psalm, having not yet seen how God is going to work in his generation, Habakkuk thinks back to how God has worked in the past and that buttresses his faith. And the, the, the psalm is shaped around that. He's speaking of the Exodus events, the Mount Sinai events. And as he thinks about those, he can't think but be reminded of the characteristics of God. What are some of them? God is holy. God is majestic. God is like a bright, intense light. God is powerful. God surveys the earth. He owns it all. All these expressions are meant to remind us, hey, God is not our peer. We're not customers of God. It's not like God is some deity that just, you know, is so weak and pitiful that he's just desperate for some affection from you. God is not a God who is thwarted in his plans or his purposes when we don't worship. God doesn't need us. But in his love, he's extended opportunities for us to enter into relationship with him. 
These are things that we were reminded about of God, when we think of God. God is not to be trifled with. Here, here's something that's super helpful. Kind of a, a theological notion that's splattered across the pages of the Bible. The higher, the higher your view of God, the more careful you'll, you'll be when you approach him. But when you do encounter him, the more blessed and filled with awe you will be. It's not a low view of God we need. We don't need God as our buddy. We need God as the holy, majestic, sovereign king. We need more of that in our worship, in our preaching, in our prayer life, and in our daily living out of the Christian faith in the trials and storms and challenges and tribulations. We need more of that. The higher our view of God, the more careful we'll be in our approach to him. And then when we encounter him, the more blessed and filled with awe we will be. These are things we need to remember about God, which inspire trust. Remember who you're talking to. Remember that you're addressing the sovereign, omnipotent, all-powerful God of the universe. He's got it. He's in control. Nothing's out of control when God's on the scene, and God is always on the scene. He's omnipresent. Just considering further this idea of trust in life, there's sort of like a trust gradient, I think. So certain relationships require a greater degree of trust and other relationships require a lesser degree of trust. So let's say you're, I don't know, you're, you're, you're walking on the sidewalk and you're just walking and there's someone walking toward you. How much trust do you need in that person to coexist on the sidewalk? Maybe like a one Basically, as long as they don't push me out in the road or knife me, it's fine. I don't need to know their moral position. I don't need to know how ethical they are. I don't need to know if they're a liar or not. Just very basic. Just a one's fine. Just acknowledge that I'm a human and you're a human. Let's not get in each other's way. Let's say you're about to buy a used car or make a purchase. How much trust do you need in the salesman? Maybe maybe a five or six. I mean, as long as the document documents are good, you know, the deed's proper. You don't have to 100% trust the person. Maybe they're not fully truthful, but if I got the contract and I've read it and I'm signing it, maybe a trust is, maybe a five is fine. How about, um, how about in a business relationship? You're going to start a business with someone. All of a sudden, the risk goes up and you're like, I don't I mean, I, 100% trust this person with my life, but, you know, maybe an eight, a nine. How about someone you're going to marry? It's like, wow, okay, that's got to be a 10. I mean, I have to trust this person. I have to believe in this person. I mean, I'm going to enter into a lifelong covenant with this person. That, that's pretty significant. But even in a 10, it's not an absolute kind of trust because you know that the other person has weaknesses. And you know, you have weaknesses. So part of the deal is, yeah, I'm going to totally trust you, but I know you're going to let me down, and I know I'm going to let you down. But when it comes to God, we can actually exercise not a 1, not a 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, or 10, and not an 11. We can exercise absolute trust in God because God never fails to deliver on his promises. We can exercise absolute trust in God. 
But all through the pages of the Bible, we see our human nature being demonstrated. Because there are plenty of times when we lack trust in God. And the circumstances vary. Think of some of the famous characters of the Bible. In Eden, God's motives were questioned. That really led to the first sin. Does God, did God really say, did God really say, and then you know, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. This is, this is questioning God's motive. Oh, God is a cosmic killjoy. God is trying to hold me back from my fullest potential. God's trying to rob me of joy. This is the lie that Adam and Eve believed. And sometimes we believe that too. I don't know. Does God, does he really have my best interest in mind? I mean, these rule things are getting kind of weighty. Uh, does, does God really remember me? Like, I don't know. Is God playing games? Is he kind of tricking us? Is he upstairs like in heaven laughing when we're suffering? Questioning God's motive will quickly lead to a lack of trust. In Achan's place or position, really what he did is he questioned God's provision. Achan was one of the men that with Israel went in to conquer the promised land. God's like, don't take anything with you. Everything's tainted. I want it all gone. Burn it all to the ground. It's done. You're not taking anything with you. He's like, ah, well, there's some expensive things here. Puts them in his pocket, takes them back, buries them in his tent. And you know the rest of the story if you've read it. God catches them and he's put to death. Why did he distrust God? He distrusted God's ability to provide. Why would God not want us to have all of this treasure and wealth? Then in Saul's ministry, his major hiccup was he didn't trust God's timing. So Saul's in powerful for two years. And he's out in the battlefield. And Samuel's like, I'm going to come in seven days. We're going to make a big offering, sacrifice to God. Just wait and we're not going to battle. We're going to, have, we're going to do things right. We're going to worship first. We're going to acknowledge God first. We're going to call upon God first. And then we'll go to battle. And Saul's out there chewing on his fingernails. And seven days goes by and he's like, I'll, I'll do it. And not being a priest, he, he takes upon a responsibility that he was not entitled to do. And he, 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 he um, engages in this sacrifice to God and Samuel comes and basically speaks words of warning and condemnation, says, you're out. I'm going to go find someone else to rule the nation. It took several years, but ultimately God fulfilled that um, judgment upon him. Then in Judas's case, I mean, Judas betrayed Jesus. Why? Well, he just really didn't believe in Jesus' identity. He was in it for the money, evidently. And so he just lost all trust in Jesus and sold himself out to religion, which like within a day had failed him to the point that he took his own life. If you think about those biblical scenarios, what, which one would be most likely to be the sin that you would commit? Would it be that you tend to trust God, distrust God's motives or God's provision or God's timing or God's identity? How do you solve that? Remember who you're talking to. Remember, this is the sovereign, holy God of the universe who is as bright 
as bright can possibly get. It's got it all in contr- under control. This is what Habakkuk declares, and it's what we must believe in order to make it yet another day. Remember who you're talking to. Second thing to remember, remember the battle that he's already fought for you. We've actually remembered this already in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Remember what the battle that Jesus has fought for you, the victories he's fought for you. For the ancient people, they were thinking back to the conquest of the land, the promised land. And so out of that, Habakkuk pens these words. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on, the deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Again, this is probably recalling God's victories in the battles that surrounded the conquest of the land of Canaan, probably several other battles that had taken place. But what I love about this is that in every use of a pronoun, he always uses the word you. So even though it's men on the horses, men in the chariots, men wielding the sword, God gets all the credit for it. It's God behind the scenes. It's God splitting rivers, letting his people escape. It's God allowing them to cross the Jordan It's God winning the battles. It's God, 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 God. God gets all the credit for it. And then you might ask the question, why did God do all this? What was he seeking to accomplish? Read on. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. God was doing it for his people. God wages war against evil for his church. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Again, how how can we grow in our faith? Think about what God has done in the past. Think about what he has saved us from. Think about what he has rescued us from. Michael W. Smith has a song. It's called Surrounded. Two lines out of it read as follows. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. That's awesome. But yeah, sometimes in life it feels like, wow, we're outnumbered here. I mean, the world is winning. The devil's winning. Clearly the church is losing. Clearly God is losing. I feel like I'm surrounded. But in the midst of all that, God has actually surrounded us. He's protecting us. He's in charge. It doesn't mean we just kind of 
lay back and do nothing because we're his tools and his toolkit. But God is in charge. It is so freeing and peace-bringing when we just think about the absolute sovereignty of God. I don't know how you make it if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over everything. He's got it. He's sovereign over everything. God is and will wage war against other people for the purposes of his own people. Those have been called by his name. He fought Satan to redeem you. He became the second Adam to save you. He died to free you. Certainly, he will carry you on to completion. In fact, I think there's a verse in the Bible that says something about that. I think there is. It's found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Remember this, church, and be blessed by it. And then we have a third thing to remember. Remember to wait. Just wait. We've talked about this before in our study of Habakkuk. But waiting is, I mean, that's a challenge, right? Who wants to wait? I get a little antsy if I'm in the drive-thru for like longer than three or four minutes. I'm like, come on! First world problems, right? I don't want to wait for anything. I don't want to wait for supper. I don't want to wait for the next blessing. I don't want to wait. Part of faith is growing up in our ability to wait. Verse 16, Habakkuk declares, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Have you ever had things like that in your life kind of happen because you're, you're anxious? You know, the, why are my palms so sweaty? Why does my stomach feel so jittery? In fact, you know, I think it's starting to affect my health. And I have an ulcer. I, I, know, I have acid reflux. I mean, it just, I, I feel it in my gut. I have a racing heart. It's like, oh, I'm having a heart attack? I feel sick to my stomach. Like, it affects our biology, doesn't it? Challenges of life affect our biology. Habakkuk, very, very earthy, very real. The Bible is, that's one of the things I love about the Bible. It's not fake. It's not... It doesn't gloss over the reality of the human condition. It acknowledges it. And Habakkuk acknowledges it. There's times in your life when your body's trembling, your lips are quivering, you feel like there's rottenness in your bones, your legs are trembling beneath me. Now, it would be super nice if the next line was something like, and God will take that right away, God will take that away immediately, and then dot, dot, dot. But that stays... And while it stays, Habakkuk goes on to write, Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Like, is that even possible? Is it possible to have all of that happening, the sweaty palms, the sick feeling in the stomach, and prior to that being taken away, yet in the moment? Still waiting? Quietly? Apparently, 
Apparently it is. Not without the strength of the Lord, of course. But there's a lot of things in life that will bring on the sweaty palms, the sick feeling in the stomach. You know, we, we, live, we all live in the same world. It might be the spouse that has abandoned you, that took the vows at the altar and has now broken them. How can you not have a reaction to that? It might be the abuse that you experienced at the hands of someone who was in authority over you. And it can, the, 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 the mental images continue to haunt you. It might be that you've been abandoned by some of your very best friends, you know, the kind of people you sat down with for coffee and poured out your heart to and prayed to, and they're not on the scene anymore. It might be the persecution, subtle, maybe not so subtle, that you've experienced in your place of employment. Might be the child that just poured your life into, you gave life to, you taught the word of God, you prayed for, who's walked. You're like, that has to be fixed before I can wait. God's like, no. No, you can quietly wait, even while your palms are sweaty and your stomach feels sick and your lips are quivering. It's like, what? How? How? How is that possible? By remembering that God loves you, that he's in control. He has grace for you. Don't quit because here's what you need to know. There's going to be a surprise ending. So wait it out. In Philippians chapter 4, we are taught, starting with verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Like, okay, I get that. That's pretty clear. Well, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice in the Lord always and again, I will say, rejoice. Pretty emphatic. Would you not agree? That's emphatic. How often? Always. Didn't hear it the first time? I'll tell you again. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. How can I be a reasonable person? How can I be self-controlled? How can I be sober-minded when I don't feel like the circumstances permit that? Well, here's how. The Lord is at hand. You need to know that. You need to believe it. You can't forget that. Know that the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It doesn't then go on to say, until such time as your problem has been fixed, or if you do this, it's going to be fixed within 24 hours, or certainly within at least a week. It doesn't say that. It just tells us to continue in prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. And then verse 7, this is the supernatural gift that God gives to those that follow this passage in obedience. Here it is. Here it is. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It's the same word as reasonableness will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's huge. That's life. You forget that one, you're going to feel like you've been dropped. But you remember that, and you practice that, and even in the midst of the harshest storms, 
the fiercest opposition. God will give you a peace that surpasses understanding. People are like, that doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't make sense. It's just been gifted to me by God. And my mind's been guarded. My heart's been guarded. I can continue to worship the Lord. You have a stomach still, feels a little off. You know, the, the hands are a little sweaty. The lips are quivering. But I'm trusting in the Lord. And then we have yet one more thing that we must remember, and that is remember to worship. Don't forget to worship. You can forget a lot of things. I forgot my keys. Uh, forgot my phone. Okay. Don't forget to worship. Remember to worship. What can you worship God for? We're looking at verses 17, 18, and 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, which is not good, nor fruit be on the vines, which is not good, the produce of the olive fail. That's not good. And the fields yield no food. That's not good. The flock be cut off from the land. That's not good. There's no herd in the stalls. That's not good. This is like everything about this is not good. But though life be not good, what does it say in verse 18? Yet, in the midst of, I will rejoice in the Lord. This is a declaration that every believer must continually make. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places and to the choir master with stringed instruments. In other words, I mean, this is so good. We got to sing it together. This became a psalm, a song in the repertoire of songs that the ancient people of God sang to God. What is this passage teaching us? It's telling us sometimes life stinks, but I'm going to continue to worship God. Have you made that resolve like in your deepest, the deepest place in your soul? No matter what, I'm going to choose now, even if it's good right now. No matter what happens. I go home today and a loved one I discover has died. I go to the doctor and he says, you got a month to live. My friends abandon me. My spouse walks. I remain infertile. I lose my job. What are you going to do? Are you going to walk like so many who were trusting God? Except when questions came into their mind about his motives or his timing or his identity. Or are you going to say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Will you do that? Brother or sister. I have nothing but respect for people who go through dark, deep waters and continue to come and continue to worship and continue to serve and continue to rejoice. Nothing but respect because they get this. And I hope and trust that when I experienced even greater challenges than I've experienced so far in my life that I will continue to say, you know what? Yeah, sometimes people let me down. And sometimes my body lets me down. 
And sometimes my sin nature lets me down. But God never lets me down. And I'm going to continue to trust in him no matter what. I'm going to be a man of resolve. Here's what you need to know, church. The devil, he wants to keep you silent because he knows that God responds to the praise and prayers of his people. The devil wants to keep you silent. And could it be that if your life is kind of a wreck right now, that you're experiencing a Job moment? Satan's asked God for permission to test you, to see what you're really made of. God's like, test away, because I know what they're made of. Being tested, being tried. And it's tough. It's difficult. You lose as soon as you go quiet. Stop praying, stop worshiping, stop testifying. You lose, the devil wins. The devil wants to keep the church quiet. Quiet in our evangelistic zeal, quiet in our dependent prayer, quiet in our unapologetic preaching. He wants to keep us quiet because then God is robbed of glory. But the Bible is calling us to respond in praise to the Lord regardless of what happens. So don't keep quiet. Continue to worship him in spirit and in truth to the honor and glory of God and to the benefit and blessing of his people.